0: Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, our rock and redeemer, amen. So on that topic of grace that Daniel explained so clearly and well to the children, Paul writes about it. He says, by grace you have been saved. In this portion of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, that phrase is repeated two times. And the word grace appears in the letter to the Ephesians 13 times. As for the New Testament, the word grace appears no less than 200 times. For those of you who grew up in or around the church, I imagine that you've heard the expression, by grace through faith, more times than you can count. And if there is anyone in here who is completely and totally unfamiliar with the hymn Amazing Grace, then crown me the King of Spain. Yes, we encounter the word grace frequently in church. We hear it a lot. We say it a lot. We even say it before meals. But I'm afraid that sometimes we just pass by this word without considering its beauty, its importance, and its crucialness for the Christian life. So, if you would with me, let's re-examine grace. Grace, in a small way, is present in the story of a young boy whose mother sent him to the store to buy a dozen eggs. She gives him three dollars and sends him on his way. But as is often the case with small boys, he gets distracted. Before he even gets off his own block, he looks down on the sidewalk and sees something marvelous. A frog. Now, to you and I, or to an older boy, a frog might be something that's not much to write home about. But this boy has a curiosity that would make Tom Sawyer jealous. So he sees this frog, and it's the most intriguing thing he's seen all day. To his young mind, it's the most important thing at this moment in his small corner of the world. So he does what's natural to him. He jumps forward to catch the frog, but he, he misses, and the frog jumps into the thicket that runs, a, that runs along the sidewalk. Well, Mama didn't raise no quitter, so he jumps after the frog. He plunges into the thicket, heedless of the mud, thorn, and brambles. Now, Mama may not have raised a quitter, but she didn't raise a sprinter either. So, after a few short minutes, he's lost track of the frog. He's defeated. But oh well, he has a short attention span, so he dusts himself off and makes up his mind to head on to the grocery store. Upon entering the store, He doesn't even make it to the dairy aisle. No, he gets distracted again. He sees another marvelous sight from the corner of his his eye. A bright and sparkling sign with the best news he's heard all day. Hubba Bubba Bubblegum. Two packs for three dollars. You see where this is going? His eyes are dazzled as if he'd seen the Holy Grail. His mouth is watering at the thought of the impending sugar high he's about to have. And he gets a little greedy, thinking, two packs of gum. I won't even have to share this with my twerpy little brother. So before you can say six feet of gum, six feet of fun, eggs forgotten, he slams the money on the table, takes the two packs of gum, and darts out of the store, headed home. Like a dog with a bone, he is intent on getting to his bedroom safely with these two packs of gum. He runs into the house, leaving a muddy trail as he goes. But before he gets to his bedroom, in passing the kitchen, his mother stops him. She looks at him curiously and says, So was the store out of eggs? Eggs! He realizes what he's forgotten. Time freezes. His heart pounds. His mind races. He begins to think, how am I going to get myself out of this one? Oh, think on your feet. What excuse can I conjure up to get out of this pickle I'm in? Mom, you should have seen this frog. It was the size of my fist. No, that won't do. Ah, uh, they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. No, that money wasn't his in the first place. He realizes he's in a whole heap of trouble. And he begins to comp- the seriousness of his situation, he begins to wonder what his punishment might be. Two weeks grounded? Ten years in Siberia? A swat with the ladle? The guillotine? He hangs his head in shame and fear and counts what must surely be his last moments here on this earth. But contrary to his expectations, his mother smiles knowingly Tossles his hair lovingly and sets him down to the table for a glass of lemonade. So what is grace? A reward for bad behavior? A questionable parenting decision? This isn't a normal thing or a logical thing for a parent to do when their child misbehaves. She would have been well in her rights to punish him in some way for his disobedience and misuse of that money. But she answers his disobedience with a mother's love. Now, frequently in this day and age, when we talk about a mother's love, often what we mean is grace. Grace is undeserved love. It's kindness and mercy when anger and punishment are deserved. That boy didn't earn that kindness. It was grace. Maybe you didn't experience that kind of love in the home you grew up in. Maybe your childhood didn't have a whole lot of grace in it. But the love that is shown to us or denied us by our earthly parents pales in comparison to the love our Heavenly Father has for us. The love of God, God's grace is much more unfathomable and far more undeserved than any love you'll experience elsewhere here on earth. Now, I must confess that I'm a bit afraid that that story puts me at risk of getting sued by the writers of The Andy Griffith Show. It's saccharine sweet, yeah, and true, it is a a little bit ideal. Most of us don't live in that nice, neat, ideal little world. No, our reality isn't much like Mayberry, is it? No. If your biggest concerns are a carton of eggs and two packs of gum, then I envy you. If the thing that weighs most heavily on your conscience is merely misusing three dollars of your mother's money, then I commend you. But if you think for a second that you don't need God's grace, then Paul has a word for you. Paul has a word for this human condition of selfishness and disobedience. He describes this human condition as being dead. Dead in transgressions and dead in sin. To be dead in transgressions, dead in your sin, means to be completely undeserving of God's love and to be completely unable to do anything to earn it. This applies to the two camps of Paul's audience in Ephesus. This applies to both the Gentiles who outrightly worshipped idols made of stone, metal, and wood this applies also to the Jews, who though they knew God by name, covertly kept idols in their hearts. Paul also speaks of walking in sin and transgressions, following the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan. To walk in this way, to follow after this, refers to how your life is lived. It refers to a deeper brokenness. You see, we as God's creatures were created for love. We were created to love God, but in our walking in sin, in our death, all that love that we were made for, that is rightfully God's, is turned in on ourselves. And in that death, in that walking, love turned in on ourselves, we pursue our own selfish desires, our own sinful wants, our own selfish ambitions. This applies to the Gentiles and also to the Jews who though they had God's law through Moses, they practiced it imperfectly. No, no matter how much good they've done or that we've done, it's not enough to earn God's love. But the flip side of that coin is no matter how far you've strayed, no matter how far you've walked in sin, no matter how dead you may be, no one, not the Gentiles or the Jews in Ephesus, not any of us, is beyond God's grace. Grace is an undeserved love. It doesn't have an economy that gives good rewards for good behaviors. It doesn't have an input or an output. While we were still disobedient, uncaring towards God, His enemies, following our own desires, dead with our love turned in on ourselves, God loved us, and his love for us was so great that it made us lovable, that it made us able to be loved. Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection are expressions of God's love for sinners, but not just mere expressions of grace. What Jesus did was far more than just an object lesson in grace on the cross where he says, Jesus loves you this much. No, it's an act of grace that made us lovable because on the cross, Jesus received the punishment that we deserve. And that's where my little story falls apart. You see, the mother merely withholds punishment from the boy. She smiles and winks at his disobedience. Friends, God does not wink at sin. Sin earns punishment. The only inheritance to that death and transgression is death. But not your death and not mine. Jesus received the punishment that was rightfully ours so that we could be lovable by God Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. We're saved by grace, unearned and undeserved. More than anything else about the Christian faith, it's grace that sets it apart from all the other religions, schools of thought, and disciplines of the world that ask, how do we get right with God? How do we get ourselves out of this punishment that is coming? What do we do with the inevitability of death? How do we be what we are supposed to be? What do we do? Nothing. Nothing. It's paid for. For you and for me, grace is free And go ahead and look around. You won't find anything else in this world that's truly free. This grace saves us from punishment. But Paul also speaks of grace making us alive with Christ. We were dead, but the death in us died with Jesus. And when Christ raises from the dead, we are raised with him. Now notice the past tense. You were dead. In your trespasses. But you have been made alive. We are dead no longer. And to move from death to life means that something about us has changed. Grace saves us, yes, but in making us alive, it changes us on the most fundamental of levels. But before we get to that, let's return to that boy from the story. If he understands his mother's act of grace, Chances are, he'll remember it. Chances are, the next time he gets sent on an errand, he'll be less inclined to chase after that frog. He'll be less inclined to misuse the money that isn't his. He might have lemonade on his mind. And if he returns with eggs, it won't be because he fears his mother or because she bribed him with lemonade. No, if he returns with eggs, it will be because he loves his mother. Not because he fears her. Now this isn't to say that he, will, that he won't slip up on errands in the future. No, he's going to slip up again. And he will be a teenager in a few years. And neither he nor his mother nor anyone is truly ready for that. But teenage years aside, errands aside, behavior aside, that boy will know that he is loved, deserved Or not. And that kind of love has a funny way of changing people's lives. Now it's the same for us, but on a much deeper, much more fundamental love level, and in a much bigger way. Grace makes us new people in Jesus, new creatures created in Jesus Christ. We aren't who we were before. We are no longer dead in our trespasses, and we find a new way to walk. And this new way of walking comes from us being fundamentally changed, where before our love was turned in on ourselves. Now, because we have been loved when we did not deserve it, our love goes outward. We can return that love to God. We can love God in return because he loved us. And we can love our neighbors. Walking in these good works that God has prepared for us, we do it as a response, not to get God to love us. He already did. But because he loved us first. And that new life we have here in Christ consists of good works that God prepared for us beforehand. And if that word, good works, makes you a little bit uncomfortable, makes you a little nervous, you're not alone. Because many of us realize we've tried and good works can't make, a, can't make us lovable to God. Good works don't save us. Good works don't wash away the sinful things we've done. So, saved by grace, do we throw away our good works? Well, no. Paul has a word for us. Workmanship. Created in Christ, we are God's workmanship. And we are created to do those good works. That's the life of we were meant to have. And good works can sound like a dirty word, but no, good works are simply acts of love. Love for God and love for your neighbor. We've been saved by that undeserved love, and it's only fitting that our response to that undeserved love would be through acts of love. Saved by grace, our status before God went from enemies and dead things to beloved children and living things, and daily living in that grace, dare I say, growing up in it, we find that our daily lives change. Now, let's return to that boy one more time. He won't stay a boy forever. He'll go to an adolescent and eventually grow up into a man. He may get married one day and perhaps have a family. And what sort of home do you think he will build? Do you think it'll be the sort of home where it's every man, woman, and child for themselves? Pursue your ambition, quid pro quo, something for something. If you do things we deem to be good, you'll be rewarded. But heaven help you should you do something to disappoint us. No, I don't think so. I'm inclined to believe that being raised in a home full of grace and full of love, he'll raise a home where they look out for each other where they love and care for one another and put each other's best interests first. I'm sure there will be discipline in that household. One way to love your children is to teach them through discipline when they misbehave, but also to forgive them. And I imagine it'll be the same for him. When his family lets him down, and they will let him down. Every person you know, every person you love will let you down at some point. But when they let him down, he will be inclined to remember his mother's act of love and grace and to share that love and grace with his family. And each time that happens, I'd like to believe that he'll call to mind his mother and he'll love her all the more. That grace that God shows us shifts our relationship with him. We go from a relationship of fear and obligation to one of love and devotion. We were dead, but we were made alive with Christ. And the thing about living things is that living things grow. And it's that kind of relationship with God that enables spiritual growth Grace defines our relationship with God, and rooting deeply in that grace, daily experiencing it, is what leads to spiritual growth. And it's a measurable thing. It'll affect your daily life. We're measuring it in steps this year. And in our steps of spiritual growth, we better recognize God's grace. We better understand it, we better love it, and we better see our daily need for it. But our steps in spiritual growth don't in any way affect or alter the identity we have in Jesus Christ. Our one step, rather, is a response to God's grace rather than our way of ensuring that we get to hold on to it. God has more grace than any of us know what to do with. And because of that, we don't have to grow spiritually. No, we get to. And if that sounds like the sort of distinction without a distinction that you hear when somebody wants something from you. Allow me to clarify. The difference between having to grow spiritually and getting to is the difference between a demand for results to ensure your status or an invitation, a loving invitation to a new life, to the life we were meant to have, to the life we find in Christ Jesus. Jesus. And for me this year, that step that I'm looking to take, that area of spiritual growth where I'm looking to better experience, better understand God's grace is in prayer. To spend time in God's presence, to be fully known by God, to listen to God in his word and respond Thanking God for being who He is to me and asking Him that when He does what God does, that I'd be in on it. To pray for other people, to pray for my neighbor and for their needs. The spiritual growth isn't about improving upon the skill of prayer or the eloquence of prayer. I'm not looking to get to the point where I pray so well that God can't help but say yes to anything I ask for. No, And should I falter? Should I fail? Should I pray poorly? Should I pray selfishly? Should I forget to pray? God will not give up on me. God will not quit on me because God keeps his promises even when we don't keep ours. And yes, at some level, spiritual growth takes work and effort. But our work and our effort into improving in this does not exceed God's grace. It cannot. We cannot do a thing to exceed God's grace. And our successes and our failures in in living in grace between our fellow people is covered by God's grace. Yes, grace changes our relationship with our neighbors too, We were made alive, made God's workmanship in order to do good works, to do acts of love and service. But God doesn't need your good works. No. But your neighbor does. God is already all deserving of all our love. We are to love him with our heart, soul, mind, with our very being. God's not in need of any grace. But your neighbor is the people you encounter on a daily basis, who whether they recognize it or not, are in severe need of that grace, who are crying out to be loved, who have the fundamental need to experience that love, whether they deserve it or not. And before God, they absolutely do not. But we are, we are loved and we are sent to these people to share that love with them, to be Jesus to people. It's often said, that the highest form of flattery is in mimicry. It's similar for us, but there's a difference. In imitating Jesus, in mimicking him, this isn't, To flatter God. God knows he's the greatest there is already. No, this won't charm God or flatter him into overlooking our shortcomings. He knows them well and he has forgiven them because of Jesus Christ. No, in imitating Jesus, in sharing that love with our neighbors because of grace, those acts of love are nothing short of praise. Thankful praise from forgiven children who want nothing more than to please their heavenly father and to grow up to be just like the son. Consider our loved-sent servant event coming up in just a few short weeks. Yes, because we are loved, we are sent to share that love with other people, to grow in it. And in sharing that grace, we experience it ourselves. We ourselves are blessed in serving someone else we find that we were not worthy of the grace in the first place but it was shown to us all the same and it creates a cycle of love and grace and in that we grow but if we are serving our neighbor to serve our reputation as the church we need to return to grace if we are loving our neighbor to feel less guilty about our shortcomings and our selfishness we need to return to grace. And if we feel that our good works, and these are good works that have an impact in the community, but if we think God looks down on them and loves us anymore because of them, we need to return to grace. And recognize that these acts benefit our neighbors, yes, and us. But it's not to make God love us. It's because we. It's what we were made for. Our acts of love, our acts of service are because of grace. We love for love's sake alone. And in God's grace, we have been remade for love for the sake of his love. So as we look at our one step this year, we do so from a place of freedom. A freedom that we didn't win ourselves. A freedom that was purchased and won for us by Jesus Christ because of God's immeasurable grace and because of that immeasurable grace we want to grow in faith knowledge love maturity and service in measurable ways in our small measurable ways in our small steps of love we imitate jesus by whom we know god's grace and by which we grow up into him and in whose name we pray amen